again, everyone. I'm Matt Laughlin. Welcome to Pirates Talk. The Hall has gotten off the mat, so to speak, and have now won four straight and sit in third place in the Big East Conference with four games left in the regular season, three on the road and just one at the Rock against Connecticut on March 3rd. If you will allow me this indulgence, I'm not going to focus on Seton Hall this week and instead we will pivot to the NBA, although the NBA is really the background story. Harvey Arrington, the former award-winning sports columnist from the New York Times and longtime basketball writer not only at the Times but also with the New York Daily News and New York Post, has written another book, his eighth, entitled Our Last Season, A Writer, A Fan, A Friendship. It's a story in which the New York Knicks play a part, but it's so much more than that as he details his friendship with Michelle Musler, a Knicks season ticket holder for 45 years, who is not only his friend, but also a mentor and a source. It's a warm tale of friendship, loss, commitment, and more. In fact, it's a story about life. And this week, Harvey Arrington is my guest on Pirates Talk. Harvey Arrington, thank you so much for joining me as we get a chance to discuss your most recent book. And I do appreciate the fact that you are giving me some of your time to go over some of the details of our last season, A Writer, A Fan, A Friendship, which is your sixth book, which includes the New York Times bestseller, Driving Mr. Yogi. But when you consider that you co-authored two others, it's your eighth book. What makes this different from the others in your mind? Well, it's different in that, um, yeah, obviously it's a different kind of sports book. If it could even be considered a sports book, uh, Matt, I mean, I think that basketball obviously was what um, established the, my friendship with Michelle Musler in the first place when I was a very young reporter for the New York Post covering the Knicks. Uh, and it's, you know, something that has bound us or that did bound us for. Uh, the duration of our 40-year friendship. Uh, I'm not think I'm giving away anything away when I say that Michelle passed away in in uh, 2018, um, and the 17-18 season, in effect, was our last season uh, as uh, uh, friends. Um, you know, with this this uh, link, this very strong link of. Um, basketball, the Knicks, and Madison Square Garden. Um, but the book itself is really more of, you know, a story of intergenerational friendship and mentorship, you know, sort of along the lines uh, of a book that came out, uh, I want to say about 20, 21 years ago, Mitch Albom's Tuesdays with Maury, similar in that respect, but also bearing some similarities to Driving Mr. Yogi, which again was about um, you know, uh, a deep, deep rooted friendship of men from different generations, um, and in many respects, mentorship. Yogi was Ron Guidry's mentor when he was a young pitcher with the Yankees, and then that kind of flipped later in life when Yogi was very old, and and Guidry became almost his caretaker in spring training. So the, the friendship with Michelle, obviously different. Um, you know, a, uh, a sports columnist and a fan uh, sitting, you know, a few feet apart from one another uh, for many of those years at the Garden because, you know, back back in the good old days when 
sports writers were actually at courtside at the Garden uh, for Knicks games. And, um, you know, uh, just, um, you know, this sense of this friendship uh, that, you know, grew into something much, much more important and that Michelle became sort of like, you know, the wise elder in my life, the person I really didn't have in my own family to help guide me in career and other life, you know, life issues. So, um, you know, it's, while it, you know, it has sports as a vehicle, it really isn't a sports book at all. But any sports fan would enjoy it because it details some of the heartaches and some of the joys that the Knicks experience, mostly heartaches under uh, their current ownership. But it, but it also is an enduring bond. Sports bonds so many of us together, yet it is much more than that. So the sports fan can enjoy it from that standpoint. But I think anyone who enjoys a relationship book in the, in the best sense would enjoy this as well. When did that, that axis kind of cross from friend, um, someone you saw at the game, someone who helped you get some background information on stories, gave you tips, et cetera, because of her access to where it crossed over to something much more than that, much deeper than that? Well, it's interesting. I think from my perspective, and as I later discovered, you know, in some ways for her, from, from hers as well, but the friendship was born out of self-interest. I mean, I was 24 years old and thrown onto the Knicks beat in 1978 um, at the Post. You know, now anyone who is familiar with the New York Post knows that it is a back page centric, uh, you know, scoop oriented, sensational tabloid. And so you're put on the beat. You have no sources. You're competing against, you know, more experienced uh, competitors who have been on the beat for several years. And you're under the gun with Rupert Murdoch as your boss, as your boss. Um, so, you know, this very chatty, friendly, interesting woman sitting uh, in the first row, you know, can keep continues to, you know, start up conversations before games or at halftime, whatever. And I'm thinking, oh, there's someone I need to know. She's, you know, sitting there looking into the team huddle. And then I subsequently find out after the friendship, you know, moves up to another level that she not only has great access to the bench, but because a lot of her social life revolved around, this is a woman who was a divorced mother of five, who lived in Stanford, Connecticut, who had to basically grind her way out of poverty after her marriage broke up uh, and launched this uh, career in human resources and ultimately uh, creating her own company in corporate uh, executive training. Um, and, uh, but she rebuilt her social life around the garden and around the inside that little basketball world. Uh, so she knew, you know, not only the, uh, some of the players, she knew their girlfriends, she knew their wives, she knew the agents. Um, so it turned out that she became my first real source, uh, you know, on the Knicks beat. And she actually, uh, helped me break a couple of stories, a few stories in my early years at the Post. So from in that sense, the friendship was really, as I said, born out of self-interest. What I subsequently found out was that Michelle, as a 
as a high school student, uh, was the sports editor for a school newspaper and a reporter. And she had these fantasies of being a sports journalist. Now, of course, in the late 40s and early 50s, which was when she went to high school, uh, there was really no path into sports journalism for a female. So when she finally got to the point where she was at the garden and, you know, her life obviously had gone in a different direction, um, she wanted, she loved, she was fascinated by what sports journalists did. And she wanted to befriend all of us. And so I was far from the only one that she had friendships with. Dave Sims of the Daily News, um, Roy Johnson, who at the time was covering the team for the Times. Uh, she knew them all. Uh, it just so happened, somewhat out of uh, serendipity, that my friendship with her became grew into something far more reaching. And part of that was because... Um, Early on in the friendship, or two or three years in, um, the woman I wound up marrying lived in uh, was from Greenwich, Connecticut, and Michelle lived in, lived in Stanford, which is just like the you know one town away. And so, um, often when I would go up to uh, see my in-laws, um, I would kind of sneak away to have lunch with Michelle, um, and my wife would cover for me and say, you know, Michelle's really close friend of his, you know, he'll be back. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so it was just sort of like, um, you know, circumstances really more than anything that kind of kept, you know, uh, it kept moving the friendship up to a different level to the point where it became, you know, something like Michelle was really family. And that comes out loud and clear in the book. Do you think the fact that you both had that blue collar background background played a role as well? Yeah, I think that we we recognized in one another. I think maybe more Michelle recognizing in me um, this young man who um, you know was suddenly in a very competitive situation uh, in in a journalism world. But coming from blue collar background, where I mean, I, you know, everybody in my family, and I mean extended family, were civil servants, whether it was postal workers or con ed workers. Um, I was the first one to go to college, and I think sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, um, you know, you kind of move up into a different kind of world. I'm not saying, you know, there was anything. There was certainly nothing wrong with, you know, the way you know people in my family earned a living. They worked really hard. But uh, when you don't have that guidance at home uh, to, you know, sort of instill that sense of belonging and things of that nature, um, you know, you're, you're just not maybe a little less sure of yourself when you do get into the world that, you know, however you get in there. And my, um, you know, my, my getting into journalism was really a serendipitous thing, uh, going back to my days living, you know, growing up in Staten Island. Um and, you know, just by sheer luck, winding up as, uh, you know, an office helper at the Staten Island Advance, um, I, you know, so I, I think that she recognized in me this this uncertainty and this lack of confidence. At the same time, she saw that I had, you know, a, a drive uh, and a competitive nature. Um, so those two things were kind of coexisting, and I think she felt like she could she could help me with that because she had experienced a similar kind of upbringing in the projects in Hartford. Well, and also as she made her way from, as you said, she she's divorced at a young age. She has five children. She's got to figure out a way to survive. 
And then I, I guess there's a point in the book where you tell a story where she's interviewing for a job and she eventually musters up the nerve to ask for $8,000. And the boss says, oh, no, no, we can't pay you that little. And they settle on a five figure income. The point being, as a woman in a male world at that time, you know, she's unsure of herself too, driven, certainly, but where are her mentors? Where are the people that tell her, yeah, there's a path there for you? And so I can see where she also looked at your story and said, you know, this resonates with me. Here's a guy who, you know, doesn't necessarily have the connections yet, but he's got the drive and uh, there's something about him that puts a twinkle in my eye. Yeah, I think she, um, you know, she found that there was a certain kind of something that she could relate to. I, you know, I know that when she initially, I mean, Michelle, everybody who knew Michelle, particularly around the garden, always believed that she, uh, you often heard people say she's the best listener uh, I've ever known. And, um, and she always used to tell her children um, uh, to be interesting. You have to be interested. Uh, and, uh, she really wanted to learn so much. She was so fascinated by this world. I think what happened in, you know, she felt when, when her marriage fell apart, and uh, I think she really would have preferred to have left the suburbs at that part to restart her own life, um, you know, once she realized that, that she needed to, uh, to keep a roof over her children's heads. But with five children, you know, finding a place to live in New York City was not really going to be easy. So, she kept them in their, you know, Stanford environment, you know, kept them stable in their schooling, but she kind of removed herself socially because she just felt she didn't belong anymore. She kind of like the, the, you know, the marriage ended abruptly. Her husband was having an affair with someone in the neighborhood. Uh, her husband, the woman's other woman's husband died suddenly, mysteriously. And, um, so there was a lot of, you know, gossip and scuttlebutt about what had happened. Uh, Michelle, you know, just felt like she wanted to escape that suburban environment, uh, the social environment. And that's what drew her as well as a love of the game, uh, and basketball. I mean, her brother had been a pretty good player when they were growing up in Hartford and she, she loved sports, but particularly basketball. So when she finally got to the point where she was able to afford a, a decent seat at the garden. She kept moving closer and closer to the, uh, to the bench, um, you know, over a period of two or three years. Uh, she just loved being there. She loved all the people. I mean, whether it was, you know, not so much the celebrities, you know, the, the actors in the house, she loved just the different kinds of people who, you know, who were so invested emotionally in the game. I mean, it could be anybody over the years from Bob Iger who went to Disney, you know, to some guy with his own business uh, in the city. But uh, she knew all of them and they all knew her. In many, in many respects, she was like, you know, the, the antithetical uh, fan to Spike Lee. I mean, Spike is the face, the face of all Nick fans, right? Sitting out front, celebrity row. Michelle was more, um, you know, she was spaced behind her team, you know, and, uh, uh, but everybody knew her at the garden, you know, just the same. The garden has been famously known over the last 25 years or so for a place where 
upper management is keeping an eye on the media. They're interested in every conversation. It has become a very paranoid paranoid organization from that standpoint. Did anybody at the Garden suspect that this season ticket holder who had these great seats and therefore had this great access and great information was the source? And I wonder, did they ever try to dissuade her in whatever way that might take place? Tell her her tickets are at risk? Did anyone suspect at the Garden that she was a source for information? I think that, uh, you know, I think we, we first have to acknowledge that it was, it was not always uh, the paranoid environment uh, that it is today. Correct. Going back to the 70s through the 80s into the early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. This is mainly happening in the, in the 80s. Um, you know, when I first came around uh, as the Knicks reporter, the Post and then later the Daily News before I wound up at the Times in the early 90s. And so while, you know, while the garden ownership was always kind of cold and corporate, um, it wasn't it wasn't like it is today. And Michelle was always in some ways uh, sort of the, the voice of the price-gouged fan. I mean, she often appeared in various newspapers for stories about you know, ticket pricing or, you know, what the, what the average, the typical Knicks fan was thinking about a particular trade or coach hiring. Um, you know, I quoted her several times at, uh, in stories in, at all three of the papers I wrote for <clears throat> while I was around the garden. And so did, you know, Philip Bondi and Kevin Kernan when he was the beat reporter at the post and, you know, and, uh, and so on. Uh, so, you know, I don't think anybody suspected it, although they knew of Michelle. In fact, in the book, I mentioned that when Dave Checkets took over the garden in the early 90s, uh, and one of the first things he did besides hire Pat Riley as coach was to form the, a dance team. And Michelle got on her high horse and wrote, you know, wrote a letter to Checkets saying, you know, how dare you? Uh, bring a you know dancing girl to Madison Square Garden, the mecca of basketball, right? I mean, she was really insulted and felt that you know this was something that was uh, almost sacrilege. Uh, the Garden is supposed to be the most sophisticated basketball you know arena in the country, but you know the NBA was changing back in those days. It was you know the lines between sports and entertainment were blurring. So the Laker girls, of course, were a huge hit in L.A., and more, more teams around the country, you know, were adding that kind of in-game entertainment. Um, so check, it's got the letter, and uh, so did I, of course. Whatever Nick, Michelle would write to the Knicks, she would then CC to me. Uh, so I get this letter, and I immediately put in the column agreeing with her, right? So the first time check, it's comes over to introduce himself to me at one of the practices that fall, uh, he says to me, uh, this Michelle Musler, is she someone I need to know? <laughs> and I laugh and I said, uh, yeah, you might want to get to know who she is and you'll find her easily enough. She's right behind the bench. Uh, so, you know, um, to, it didn't really get out of hand, you know, the whole atmosphere until, let's face it, the Dolan era. Uh, and, and I will say that when the Knicks, uh, when the Knicks, traded Jeremy Lin, or they let him go to Houston. Michelle was highly, you know, offended by that. She felt like, here's a nice story that developed on our watch. He's someone that, 
you know, he's like someone that we cultivated and we had these three weeks or whatever it was of, you know, fantasy basketball. And then of course, you know, the whole thing with Carmelo and, uh, objecting to Lynn's role on the team and, they let him go to Houston uh, when Houston kind of finagled with the uh, the offer sheet. And Michelle, you know, uh, we talked about it, and she said uh, this was the first time she'd ever said, don't put my name, if you do use the quote, don't put my name in the column. Because at that point she did fear retribution because she knew the way Dolan operated with fans who – he considered stepping out of line. That was the first time and maybe the only time um, she ever felt, you know, in fear of her seat location being taken away. What a shame. What a shame. You mentioned that her seats behind the bench were close to where writers used to sit, very close to the action. Writers, broadcasters have been moved. TV's still down below. Radio, though, and writers have been moved to higher spots. They sell those tickets. Uh, it's all about the bottom line. But is there still room in the game for that type of fan who can somehow muster to pay an exorbitant amount? And in the book, you detail that, you know, she had some benefactors that enabled her to continue as, you know, she retired and then she she got ill, but to continue her love and up close appearances. But is that era gone? Can somebody who still is a fan he or she would have to be incredibly affluent, but buy those seats or are those fans basically passing along and it's it, it's all corporate. Well, I think it, this is an interesting question. And I think it also, uh, one that, cause she was a fan uh, as you teach. I mean, she loved the game and she just had access because of her job and running this human resources, uh, agency. She was, she, uh, she was able to, uh, she was able to afford the tickets for the most part. I wonder if that can happen anymore. Sorry to interrupt. No, I think, I think it's a very good question. I think that, um, you know, Michelle would lament over the, you know, the last years that she was down there that more and more people were dropping off. You know, some people were moving away, uh, but many, uh, including a couple that sat directly behind her. I mean, I knew they were fairly wealthy people. They lived in the Dakota. They guy had his own, um, real estate development business, uh, but even they essentially gave up the tickets. Uh, and I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people, yeah, couldn't afford them anymore. So it became much more corporate. The crowd, um, you don't get people attending every game. A lot of the tickets are sold on, on the exchanges. Um, and, uh, you know, th- that's just, you know, the courtside in, in the NBA is probably the most, intimate place, intimate venue in sports also, but also the most expensive. And, you know, part of, but as, you know, until it got to the point where, you know, where so many people were priced out, there was an intimacy and that was something that was shared with the players and coaches and trainers and media. Um, That's being lost. Uh, As a matter of fact, I mean, the relationship that I developed with Michelle and some other lesser friendships that I, that I had across the years, um, you know, by being at court, so that couldn't happen today because you're just not down there. I mean, yeah, you can linger before a game as the players are, you know, warming up a little bit and catch somebody coming in, but, you know, being 
being in that being in that uh, that that element, you know, for the entire night. Um, you know, in the book, I talk about the night of the OJ chase when we had a TV monitor right on the press table. I was sitting right near the Knicks bench. It was game game five of the finals against Houston, and you know, every time I turned around, Michelle's Michelle's chin was practically resting on my shoulder because she was trying to watch the game, but also keep her eye on the OJ chase, which was on the TV monitor. Um, and when I turned around after the game was over and I picked up my laptop to run back inside, the Knicks, you know, suddenly one win away from, from their first title. I bump in right into Michelle and she goes, when are you leaving for Houston? And I say, what do you, I, she said, when are you leaving? And I meant, she, I said, for where? And she goes, for Houston, dummy. And I said, uh, well, I'm going tomorrow afternoon. She said, you know, you know, call me later with your flight number and I'll be on the same flight. I mean, she, you know, one, she said, I'll, I've been sitting here for 20 some odd years and I'll be damned if they're going to win the championship. They're going to do it without me being there. So, you know, it was that kind of, you know, exposure and, and uh, uh, ability to just, you know, communication uh, that you had with fans like that, that created, you know, that kind of special courtside atmosphere. You know, Mike, Mike Breen was, was telling me not too long ago that when he went down to the bubble in Orlando for the season's resumption last summer, that what struck him most, I mean, it was kind of like a high tech studio that they created. I think we're getting a more of a stark example now in NBA in this NBA season, because, you know, they're playing in their large arenas that are empty for the most part. Um, but he said what struck him the most was the absence of people like Michelle, uh, because they are, they are what makes the game some more than a game. They make it an event and, uh, without them there, you know, it just doesn't feel like something that's special. Yeah. You can focus on the action and some of the games have been great. Um, but I, I hope, let's put it this way, Matt. I hope all of professional sports, uh, but in particular, we're talking about the NBA. I hope they understand and they see fans as something more than a great revenue stream. Um, because even on television, it doesn't quite resonate as much without fans packing courtside. Of course, you know, the question you raise about these fans and the kind of fans and money that it costs It'll be very interesting as we go forward to see just how quickly people are willing to be packed into a courtside, you know, uh, environment like that. If the virus is still circulating, just as not as, you know, not as much as it is as it has been. Uh, if people are vaccinated, but maybe they work only 70 percent, it's going to be interesting to see just how quickly the fans do come back. Uh, and I, you know, I've asked several, including Spike Lee, not too long ago about, you know, just how enthusiastic they will be to go back. And he just said, you know, he said, we'll just have to see. I just don't know. I think we do have to wait and see. I also think that this pandemic has caused so many of us to, if not reevaluate what's important to us, just at least it's given us a chance to explore other things in a limited way, maybe the outdoors, maybe somebody gets into reading a little bit more. I mean, we, we, we can't go to concerts or movie theaters anymore. But at any rate, I, I do wonder how it is going to reconfigure the sports thought, if you will. I think people will watch. I don't know if they'll watch in the same numbers. I, I think 
something broke here, clearly, and I just wonder how difficult or easy it will be to put back together again. I'm, I'm very curious to see what the next few years hold for sure. You know, a bunch of years ago, I must have been about 20 years ago, the, the Sunday Times Magazine did an entire issue on the business of sports. And they asked me to do a uh, to sort of a lead-in piece, an introduction. And not surprisingly, I immediately called up Michelle. And I used <laughs> her as, you know, this devoted fan who spent a, you know, a good deal of her recreational income uh, on, on this, on this, on basketball, that it's sport that she loves so much uh, and had this great access. And um, in that piece, I remember quoting people like Bob Gutkowski, who was the former president of the garden uh, at the time when they won the Stanley cup in 94 and, and also the Knicks went to the game seven of the finals and people like Chet Simmons, who was the, uh, the head of NBC Sports and then the um, the first president of ESPN. And I called a lot of people like that, and they said, wow, you know, sports is the ultimate in reality TV. The arrow will always point up. People will always want to pay for it. And, you know, I remember thinking to myself, you know, nothing goes up, up and up forever. And, yeah, this, these are extraordinary circumstances and extraordinary times. But, you know, I have to believe that, you know, when things do clear, it's not just about risk and whatever risk there will continue to be in terms of health, but also habit. You know, people's habits do change. I mean, let's take the film industry. We already saw before the pandemic that streaming had had a, was having a dramatic effect on people going out to movie theaters. And now with the pandemic, people have not been going to movie theaters and now we're starting to see, you know, studios make deals directly with Netflix to release brand new films. So, you know, the same thing, people have been sitting in their basements with these huge screen televisions and, you know, the warmth of their homes and, you know, not having to commute and pay $50 to park their car. Um, I do think a lot of people, you know, will reevaluate. And I think corporations will, too, because let's face it. You know, many, many businesses have been affected uh, by the pandemic. Will, you know, will businesses still be eager to put their executives, you know, in business class plane seats and fly them around the world when we've gotten used to Zooming all these meetings? So I think, as you said, you know, uh, this these are extraordinary times and uh, habits will change. I think people love getting out of the house and they love you know, doing things collectively, but at what cost and at what risk? And I think those are the questions that will have to be answered. And we will only begin to know once uh, this vaccine gets distributed more widely. Last one, Harvey, and I'll let you go. Uh, what would Michelle Musler think of this iteration of the New York Knicks? I think she would be thrilled Uh she used to always say, of course, she, you know, in the book, we talk about how she, um, you know, her first year as a season ticket holder was 1973-74. So she missed the second and last championship by, by one season. And she sat there for a good 45, waiting for the championship that never came. And, of course, in 94, they were really close. And as I said, she actually flew down to Houston. Um you know, for game six and seven. 99 was a great run, but 
Um, no one thought the Knicks had much of a chance. It was so beaten up with injuries by the time they got around to playing San Antonio. Uh, but she loved the nineties because, you know, every, every year had, you know, tension filled playoff nights. But the one thing that she used to always say was, you know, uh, I just want them. I just want to have hope. I just want to feel that they're building something this notion that you can't rebuild, start from scratch in New York, that you always have to kind of microwave a contender. She never really bought that. Um, she was a fan who would have really enjoyed seeing a team, a young team develop. So I think she would look at this team and see the development of Julius Randle, uh, you know, as into, you know, what we think will be all-star status. Um, uh, the development of R.J. Barrett in his second year, um, this kid, Emmanuel Quickly, who seems to be a revelation. And she would say, okay, you know, this looks like there's a foundation being developed and a, and a, and a style of play, defensive-oriented style of play on, under Thibodeau. Uh, she probably would not be too pleased about the reacquisition of Derrick Rose uh, <laughs> to, you know, try to, you know, sacrifice shots and minutes for the young players to try to get to the seventh seed. You know, she wouldn't have bought that. But I think overall, she would like this team uh, simply because there seems to be a purpose. I think the last bunch of years, certainly the Carmelo years, the Marbury years, just seem to be, you know, what I mentioned before, this, you know, doing whatever, doing whatever it takes to just kind of convince people that, yeah, we got something going on, not much, but it's something. So while you're paying $1,100 for your fourth row seat, we could at least say that we have Carmelo Anthony. I mean, those are the things that drove her crazy. She really resented that whole Carmelo era. She blamed Dolan. Uh, there's a whole chapter in the book called Dolan and the Death of Hope, and it's about Michelle not only lamenting, the interference of Dolan, but also imagining what it would be like to apply her professional skills to try to improve him as an owner, because after all, that's what she did do for a living. That would be a very interesting conversation if it ever had the chance to come about, which it never would have, of course, but that would really be interesting because uh, she was honest. She was forthright. It came, it comes through in the book. She was a great fan. She, Clearly was a wonderful friend of yours. The friendship was deep and abiding, and it's a lovely story. Our last season, a writer, a fan, a friendship by Harvey Arrington. And Harvey, it's been a delight to spend time speaking to you about it and about uh, basketball and life in general. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Matt. I really enjoyed it. And that will wrap things up for this edition of Pirates Talk. Thanks to Harvey Arrington for his time. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and I hope many of you are inspired to read his book. It is a delight. Thanks also to Colleen McGarvey, publicity manager for the book's publisher, Penguin Press, for arranging the interview. And thanks to Rick Knapp, a loyal listener to Pirates Talk, for always chiming in with a comment. Recently, he chuckled, as did we all, about Kevin Willard saying he zoned out when the conference discussed seeding for the upcoming tournament. By the way, it will be done based on winning percentage since teams will wind up playing a different amount of conference games because of COVID postponements and cancellations. Thanks for your support, Rick. 
Pirates Talk is available wherever you subscribe to podcasts. I invite you to rate the show, leave a comment. I'd love to hear from you. And if you do drop a line, I will mention your name on an upcoming show. Special thanks as always to Pat Christensen, the sound engineer of the program and the writer and performer of the Pirates Talk theme. And thanks to you for your company. It's very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Matt Lachlan. Be safe, be well, and let's go Pirates. Pirates.